0: Well, hey, friends, you can open up to Exodus chapter 5 with me. Chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're starting this morning. And as you do that, I want you to hear uh, pastor and author Greg Gilbert. He wrote a book called What is the Gospel? And in it, he wrote a chapter about God. Who is God? What is God like? And I want you to hear how he begins that chapter. So I'm just going to read it at length for us. It's a little long, but I think it's worth it. He says this, let me introduce you to God. Note the lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, those were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared about what he thought, and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. You'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But, of course, that's all right with him because he's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness that you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back and when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do, regardless, is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that, but he's realistic. He knows that I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. I think we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time he can get. You've joined me in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, where we're continuing our study through the book of Exodus. And the little monologue from this book that we just looked at maybe sounded a little silly, maybe a little absurd. There weren't any laughs in the room. I don't know. I think a couple points were kind of funny. But I think that this description of how we sometimes think about God is maybe not too far off from the way that some of us picture God. A God who's loving and kind but doesn't make any sort of demands on us and can really honestly be safely ignored if we have better things to do. Again, maybe it sounded silly, but I think there's some accuracy here. But see, when we read any book of the Bible, especially the book Of exodus like we've been doing as a church for a few months now we we see God as he reveals himself when we read God's word we have nothing short of an encounter with the real and living God and the big question that this passage asks us to consider this morning is who is the Lord who is the Lord who is this God that we are talking about maybe heard that in verse 2 of the passage as Darren read it earlier. Who is the Lord? And the context for that question comes in the first few verses of chapter 5 as we see Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh. This is the first confrontation that Moses has with Pharaoh leading to the release of the people. And we've really been building up to this moment for months Right? We've been talking about, as a church, the early chapters of Exodus and we see that the people of God are in slavery and God says he's going to rescue them and free them. And he calls Moses to go back to Egypt and go and confront Pharaoh and God will act and save and rescue his people. And then Moses, last week, is headed back to Egypt and now it's like, here we go, the confrontation is here. This is like fight night. 2019 or Fight Night Ancient World, right? We got our popcorn ready. We're excited to see some drama. We're ready for this showdown. So we jump in in verse 1. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Let my people go. Go. Now, depending on your translation, maybe it says, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. That's actually the, this is the first place in the Bible where we see that phrase. Thus says the Lord. Or this is what the Lord says. Here is a word from God. And this is the message that God has been, again, saying for several chapters now. Pharaoh needs to let the people go. God is going to rescue his people. He is going to lead them out of Egypt so that they might worship him. Now, if you think about it, this encounter is actually pretty noteworthy because we've gotten used to Moses being a little fearful. Moses has not exactly been the perfect example of obedience, right? He takes matters into his own hands in chapter two. He kills an Egyptian, and then we see as God's calling him, he's saying no, he's making excuses, he's a little dodgy. Been watching some British TV. Working work the word dodgy, acting like rubbish, sort of. He tells God, no, I don't want to do what you've called me to do, God. But now, now he's bold, right? He's stepping into this confrontation with Pharaoh. He's delivering a thus says the Lord in what has to be a, a scary situation, right? Confronting the most powerful man in the world, the king of Egypt, saying, hey, you need to let the people go. So what changed for Moses. What led him to this fearful, dodgy man living out in the wilderness to now obeying God and confronting the king of Egypt? It it had to be this encounter that he had with God. He met with God in a real way. We saw in chapter 3 and chapter 4, this encounter with God has changed him. That's the only explanation. For now, this courage that he has, this experience that he had with God that has compelled him to action, that's compelled him to obedience, that's compelled him to take risks and enter scary, dangerous situations. And friends, this is what we today need the most. We are desperate for genuine encounters with God. That's my hope for us as we gather as a church. That's my prayer that we would come on a Sunday we would open God's word and we would we would meet with God we would hear from him we would hear and celebrate the gospel that you would leave knowing who God is and what he has done for you that you are loved by God it's genuine encounters with God that change us transform us not just more information not just helpful life tips. That's not what changes us, but it's an encounter with the real and living God. That's my prayer for us as a church. Honestly, that's my prayer for for friends of mine, for for family members that, that don't know Jesus, don't care about Jesus. That's my prayer for them, is that they would have an encounter with God, that God would show up to them in such a way that it was so real that they couldn't ignore it, they couldn't deny it, but that Jesus would would make himself known in their lives so that they would come to him. That's my prayer, because that's what changes us, is a transforming encounter with God. And that's what Moses had here in chapters 3 and 4, which led to his action in chapter 5. So we say, well done, Moses. He and Aaron now are on the way to this encounter with Pharaoh. In verse 2, we see how Pharaoh responds. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So there it is, the key question to the chapter. Who, who is the Lord? Possibly the, the key question to the whole book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? Who is this God that is speaking? And so we see that the struggle in Exodus is not between Moses and Pharaoh, it's between God and Pharaoh. It's a confrontation between the living God and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Pharaoh's first response is what? To, to scoff. Can we say that together? Some of you were too good at that. Some of you were doing that too much. Who are you? Who, who is the Lord? Who are you that I should listen to? To you, And maybe we can relate to this response. Right? Have you ever had someone step into your life and say something about maybe how you do your job or how you run your home? And maybe the first reaction is, well, who are you? Who are you to speak into this? You don't know. So maybe Pharaoh's having a similar response. Who, who is this God of the Hebrews telling me what I need to do? And we see then in his response two issues. Two issues. The first is Ignorance. And the second is defiance. Ignorance and defiance. So the first thing we see in Pharaoh is that he's, he's ignorant. And that sounds harsh. I know that's kind of a strong word, a pretty negative word. But being ignorant simply means he does not know. He doesn't know who God is. Who is this God that you speak of? Why should I listen to him? See, for the Egyptians in the ancient world, they viewed Pharaoh as a god. He was not just a human ruler. He had a divine presence, a divine power, a divine authority to rule over his kingdom. And so maybe Pharaoh's thinking to himself, hey, I'm a god. I have the authority to rule. And so who is this god of the Hebrews that you're telling me about, Moses? Also in the ancient world, again, the spiritual landscape was pretty varied. There were a number of Different deities out there that people believed in or sacrificed to in some form recognize, and so for saying, "Hey, who is this God of the Hebrews? Who is he? Why should I listen?" And maybe that's the question you have as you come into church today, or someone you know is asking that question: "Who is the Lord?" I mean, let's be honest. Of all the spiritual opinions and views out there, why Jesus? Why this God, or a lot of us don't know, who God is as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Right? Sure, we have plenty of assumptions about God. God is loving. God is, uh, wants us to be happy. God definitely doesn't judge us. You know, whatever it might be. We have assumptions about God, but we have to wonder, what are, what are those assumptions based on? Are are our assumptions about God based on maybe our own preferences, what we want God to be like, what we maybe hope that God is like, the God that we've made up in our own minds? Or do our beliefs about God come from from Scripture, how God reveals himself? And so so briefly, I want to do a little crash course in theology, theology, the study of God. It's going to be very brief, but I want to talk about who is the God of the Bible, and what is he like? There's a few foundational truths I want to talk about and share with you, and it's not going to answer every question about God, and keep in mind, again, you might not like this picture of God that I paint from Scripture. You might disagree or push back, and we can talk about that, but I don't want us to leave this morning like Pharaoh Being ignorant or unsure of how God reveals Himself in the Bible. And so, what are some of those key truths when we think about God? What are some of those key characteristics that we should keep in mind? The first is that God is Creator. This goes back to the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or we can look to the Psalms, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So God created everything, and so everything belongs to him. Everything is from him and for him. There was Nothing, and then God created everything. And sure, there are going to be some disagreements, even in the Christian world, about how did God do that and exactly when did God do that. And we can talk about that. It's a long conversation. But at the core, we say God created it. He's behind all of it. And notice then what this means. It means that God is distinct from his creation. Right? There is God. Picture with me, uh, Piece of paper. God is on this side. And then there's a, a line. And then over here, there's everything else. Right? God, everything else. And sometimes what we do, especially today, is we kind of blur that line a little bit. And out there in kind of the, the spiritual ether is this kind of pantheism that's coming up today where we say, well, God is everything, or everything is God, or we're all kind of a spark of the divine, and talking about God as a way of talking about all the human race coming together, all the trees and birds, those are aspects of God. And, And as a Christian, from a biblical perspective, we would say, no, that's actually not a biblical worldview, because the Scriptures present God distinct from His creation. There's God, and then there's everything Else. And that is a, a fundamental piece of who God is. He's separate from his creation. Also, God is holy and righteous. We think of those scenes in maybe Isaiah chapter 6 or the book of Revelation where people see God on his throne and the angelic beings are saying what? Holy, holy, holy. is holy, meaning he's, He's separate. He's distinct. He's not like us. He's perfect. He's not tainted by sin of any kind or any imperfection. Also, Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. So God is righteous and just. He rules and judges with perfection he always does what is right he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished or leave injustice to be swept under the rug he holds people accountable before his throne and that's something that sometimes in the west we have a problem with we don't like a god that judges we don't like a god that condemns, but in many parts of the world, especially throughout history, that is a truth that is celebrated, especially where there's violence and injustice and evil seen more clearly. People say, we want our God to do something about this. We celebrate the fact that God is judge and he will judge with righteousness. In the end, all evildoers will be held accountable. There's a little bit of a scary truth when we realize then our own sin, how we are guilty before God as well. But then it makes the joy of salvation that much greater, right? That we celebrate the fact that we are forgiven, given grace before God through faith in Jesus Christ. We celebrate that God is holy. He is righteous. He will judge all the earth perfectly. So God is creator. God is holy and righteous. Third, God is Almighty, God does all that he pleases, Isaiah 46 tells us. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, there's nothing he cannot do. He's omnipresent, there's nowhere that he is not present. Psalm 139 tells us famously, the psalmist says, where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And everywhere in between, God, you are present. There's no space or place in our universe that is beyond the reach of God. Also, God is omniscient. He he knows all things. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He knows our words before we speak them, Psalm 139 says. Some of us say, uh oh. (laughs) That's not good. Nobody knows. Our words before they even come out. He knows the future. There's nothing God is ignorant of. There's nothing that God has to learn or evolve into or progress out of. God is perfect in His character. Next, God is compassionate and gracious. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And so maybe we are distraught or discouraged when we read about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And like Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his book, when he encounters God, he says, What woe is me, I am unclean. I come from a people who are unclean, standing before the living God. But then we remember this truth, that God is, is gracious. God forgives. God's compassionate and merciful. He longs to forgive to welcome us into his presence. He's patient with us. He's kind. He wipes away our sin when we trust in him. God is compassionate and gracious. And again, we see that in the Old Testament, and we see that in the New Testament. Over and over again, God is gracious. And lastly, we see that God is personal. God is personal. He invites us to know him. There's plenty of verses that we could point to that talks about the relational nature of God. God wants to know us. And this is important because sometimes our picture of God is that he, sure, he created the world. He kind of spun it up, and then he just kind of let it go. And now he's stepped back from his creation not involved in the day-to-day matters, kind of like a watchmaker, the watchmaker god, some have called it. He spins it up, makes it, and then tosses it, and then it it just goes. And he's not too involved with it. It's a philosophy known as deism. Actually, many of the founding fathers of our country were not actually biblical Christians. They were deists They said God made the world. There's a creator, sure, but he's not really involved in the day-to-day. He doesn't really want to know you. He doesn't need you to really obey him and follow him. There's just these laws of the universe that you should follow. That's not biblical Christianity because God is personal. He's interested in us. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So Jesus invites you, come to me. You, draw near to me. I will give you rest will bless you. I'll give you life and forgiveness and all the rest. So God is creator. God is holy and righteous. God is almighty. God's compassionate and gracious. God is personal. And we could say a lot more, but I think that if we could wrap our minds and our hearts around those few things, it would take us a long way in really understanding who God is. As we talk about who God is, we have to, of course, look at the person of Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament makes clear that when we want to see God, we can look to Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. The perfect picture of who God is. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1 Jesus says, or excuse me, it says about Jesus that he has made the Father known. And so we can look to Jesus and see this is what God is like. This is how God acts and thinks and operates. He's made the Father known. And so, friends, I don't want us to be ignorant like Pharaoh. I want us to come to the scriptures and really see who God is, not As we necessarily want him to be, not a God shaped around our mere preferences and assumptions, but a God as he reveals himself in his word. Back to the book of of Exodus, we see with Pharaoh, his issue isn't just ignorance. It's also defiance. Look again at his response in verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So he's not just lacking in knowledge. He's lacking in obedience. It's not just that he doesn't know much of God. There's a a relational issue here. I will not acknowledge this God as God. He says, I will not obey. I will not let the people go. I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. They even respond in verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And we know that that's true, plagues come, right? Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. So Pharaoh still says, you know what? On second thought, still no. Get back to work. Why are you distracting the workforce with these lies of freedom and such. Get back to work. And so here's what the defiance boils down to for Pharaoh. Here's what the confrontation is about. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Who has the authority here? Because Pharaoh says, Pharaoh's in charge. I'm the king of Egypt. I'm the most powerful ruler on the face of the planet. I'm a god. So I do what I want to do. I call the shots. Why should I listen to this so-called God of the Hebrews. And that's actually going to be a theme throughout the book, is that God will show his power, show his wonders through the plagues and other means in order to show Pharaoh who he is. That Pharaoh would learn the hard way, unfortunately. He will learn who really is in charge. But we talk about this a lot today. If you, remember, if you were here for our series through the Gospel of Mark, Maybe you remember we talked about this pretty regularly. We would see that the Gospels show that Jesus is the king. He's the king of the world. And he deserves our obedience. He is the authority. Again, Kanye West, new album, Jesus is king. He got it right, people. Jesus is king. We talked about that. And so the question is, do we obey him? Or do we say, I'll take a savior I'll take someone who forgives me, I'll take someone who's nice to me, but I don't really want to get into the whole demands and and do what God wants me to do. But He's a king, he's our authority, and so, friends, you might be here this morning, you might know plenty about God, but do you obey him? You could talk about theology and the doctrine of God as I just did, maybe you could do it better than I could. Talk about these attributes, let me tell you who God is, he's almighty, of course, He's a creator, of course. I could tell you more. He's compassionate and gracious. He's personal. Let's add a few. I could teach a class on that, maybe you're saying. Okay. But do you obey him? Do you do what he says? See, we should be worried. We should be worried, friends, if our knowledge outweighs our obedience. And especially in an information age. Because we have podcasts, countless numbers of podcasts and sermons and lectures and PDFs, information about God that we could listen to 24-7 and fill up our minds with information about who God is. But we should be worried if our knowledge outweighs our obedience. That's a real danger for us. And here's what we do sometimes in church world. I've heard this dozens of times just in different years, different churches, about different things. People say, I want more depth that sermon was too shallow. That book was too shallow. That Bible study was too shallow. I need the meat. I need more depth. I want more information. I want a deeper, more profound study about God. It's not being fed here. And sometimes that is true. There are shallow books out there. There are shallow Bible studies out there. there are, there's shallow preaching. Sometimes happens. That, that's true. But sometimes... We don't need more information. Sometimes, frankly, you don't need more information. You need to act on the information that you already have. We need to sit with simple truths from Scripture long enough to actually start to do them. And sometimes just craving or or, or criticizing others because we want a deeper Bible study. We want more information. is just a smokescreen. It's just a way to get yourself off the hook from actually doing what God's told you to do. And I'm guilty of this too. But it's not just about more information. It's about obedience. That's what Pharaoh lacked. He didn't respond. And so, here are the three most excuse me, common areas where we struggle to surrender to God. Here are the three most common areas where we're going to have to ask the question, who's in charge? So when it comes to our time, our money, and our relationships. And there's plenty in these three points to offend just about everyone. So, (laughs) here we go. Seriously, who's in charge? One of the biggest areas, our time. Our time. We've talked about this before. Our time is the most precious resource that we have. You can make more money. You can make new friends. Never going to get your time back. And frankly, there are a lot of us who want to spend our time how we want to spend our time. We don't really ask, well, how does God want me to spend my time? Or how should I prioritize my schedule and our week and my months? It's just, what do I want? And frankly, to be honest, some of us, it's easier to write a check to church than it is to show up and do something. It's easier to write a check or direct a or whatever... uh, auto pay, however we set up the bill pay on our bank. It's easier to send the check than it is to show up and get involved with messy people's lives, take time out of our schedule. It's way easier to write the check. But God calls us to prioritize our time around his priorities. And see, here's the sad, here's the sad irony. We all say, we look at our values, okay, or our commitments, worship, connect, grow, go. And we all, we all would say, I, I want to worship God. I want meaningful, experiences, encountering God in His Word, powerful times of prayer. I want to experience God, and, and I want authentic community. I want real relationships. I want genuine friendships. I want depth in my relationships. Of course, we say, I want to grow. Of course, I want to learn more about God. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to learn new things. I want to do what God wants me to do. But then, with the way that we spend our time, we sabotage those desires, we say, well, I want this, of course, and I want to connect, of course, I want to grow, of course, but then we spend our time in ways that sabotage those things actually happening because we get so busy that we don't, we don't show up. We don't join groups. We don't spend time with other believers because we're so busy. And so we say we want those things, but then we don't prioritize our time in order for those things to happen. And then we wonder why we're disconnected and why we feel lonely and why we feel discouraged. And it's not that the other things we're doing are necessarily bad, right? We're not all out looking for cocaine and prostitutes on the weekends, right? We're probably doing good things. Doing, I don't know, traveling, busy with maybe extra work, we're doing sports with our families. Those things aren't necessarily bad. And in good measure those seems to be really healthy and really important. But sometimes the question needs to be asked are, are we justifying checking out of, of church life? Checking out of the priorities of God because we just want to spend our time in this way? This is a question we all need to ask. It's a question that I need to ask, even as a pastor, to think about. Second area is in our, our money. Because we say, who's in charge of your money? Is it me or is it you? You think about how you budget? There are plenty of things to spend your money on, plenty of toys to buy, experiences to buy. Will we give generously? And friends, this is a, I don't say this because we're hurting for money. This is a generous church. You guys are a generous church. We still have to ask, are we doing what God wants us to do with our money? Are we supporting missionaries? Are we finding ways to care for the poor and vulnerable? This year, we're really excited about some unique giving opportunities we're going to have towards the end of the year. Next week, probably, we're going to be talking more about that. Stay tuned. There's going to be exciting ways to give generously. Or, again, do we sometimes just spend our money how, how we want to spend our money? Say, well, there's no Bible verse specifically against this, so I should do it. Or, again, do we... I mean, I'm not even advocating for specific changes with your money. We're all in different places with finances and budget. I'm not even advocating for specific changes right now. I'm just saying, are we even asking the question, God, what do you want with my money? What do you want me to do with it? It's yours. God, is all yours. You gave it to me. Should I buy this or should I not? Should we give more here or should we not? God, what, what do you want for my finances? We have to ask that question if we're really going to claim that Jesus is Lord. So time, money, and third is is relationships. Who's in charge of how we interact with other people, this comes into play in a couple of different ways. One with our romantic relationships, our family relationships, right? How we treat our kids, our spouse, but romantic relationships. The Bible is clear about God's design for sexuality. It takes place in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And I know that's hard for some people to hear today, or process. But let's even just step back from that truth, okay? And think about, before we even talk about the specifics of a biblical sexual ethic, let's just say, are we even willing to listen to what God says about it? Think about that. So, the, the issue of sexuality or marriage or whatever it might be is, is so charged, or we've already made up our minds, frankly, about what we think about it. So, we say, I don't even want to listen to what the Bible has to say about it. I don't even care. So, he need to ask, are we even willing to ask the question and say, God, I will go wherever you lead me on this topic. And this, this applies for relationships, this applies for any other topic. God, I will go where your word leads me no matter how uncomfortable the conclusions are. Because you are Lord, you're in charge, I'm not. So Lord, I'm going to let you speak into this. Do we even ask the question? Again, it's not just romantic relationships though. When you go to work, how you treat your employees, how you treat your Boss, how you treat your peers, with all of those different relationships, we have to say, will I conduct myself in a way that honors Jesus? He's called me to love, to sacrifice for the good of others, to bless and not curse, to do good even when I'm criticized or insulted. Do we do good in those relationships, in those contexts, or do we get bitter and kind of fight back the way that other people would? So, who's in charge of our relationships? Again, time, money, relationships. Who's in charge? For Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I'm in charge. I'm not going to listen to you, God. I pray we don't make the same mistake. Now, it's important to say at this point, friends, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember the good news of Jesus and clarify what I'm talking about when I'm talking about obedience. We have to say this a lot here at church because often we, we miss it. And what we do is when we hear rules from the Bible, or that God is in charge, and we better listen to him, and obedience is important. What we do is, what well, we say, okay, that sounds like old-school religion. Just obey, act right, and God will be pleased with you. But well, frankly, it's possible to check some of those boxes, do some of the good things, avoid some of the bad things, and still have a heart of stone towards God. And so we're not talking about just keeping the rules, it's obedience so that God's Happy with you. The key here is that because of the gospel, we have to remember the gospel that we do not obey in order to belong. We obey because we belong. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. We do not obey in order to belong, to earn our salvation, to earn God's favor or forgiveness. We obey because we belong, because in Christ we've already received forgiveness and grace and the love of God. Just Poured out on us God's kindness and His mercy and His love, and so then our lives are lived in joyful response. God has saved me, He's forgiven me through no work of my own. It's been a gift of grace through Jesus Christ. So now, in joy, I can live and do what He's called me to do and live how He wants me to live, and that's actually good for me. And He knows what's best, and I want to please Him not because I'm afraid. Not because I'm trying to earn anything, because he's already given me everything I need in Christ. So that's the key, is remembering the gospel when we talk about obedience. One last piece of the text, friends. Look at how Pharaoh responds again in verse 5. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. So that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So this first confrontation with Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, doesn't go very well, right? The result is Pharaoh makes things worse for the people. We're going to talk about this in detail next week, how their burdens got heavier. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let the people go. I'm going to make life hard for them because they're lazy. But also notice what he says in verse 9. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies, Make sure they're not listening to these lies. And here we see one of the most common tactics of our enemy to point to God's word and call it lies. That's what Pharaoh says. It's all a lie. God's in charge. That's a lie. God wants to rescue you, free you from slavery, make your burdens lighter. That's a lie. God wants to give you life and a purpose and hope and God can transform your life right now. It's a lie. Don't believe it. That's what Pharaoh does So our enemy still today does pay no attention to the lies. And so we have to be careful as as Christians to be thoughtful, to know the truth, to know who God is and what God says so that we can identify the lies. Excuse me, we can identify when the accusation of lies comes. Is that accurate? We can stand on God's word. And friends, one of the practices that we have been given by Jesus to remember the truth and combat the lies of the enemy is communion. We're about to celebrate communion as a church family together. We're going to come to the table. We're going to take the bread, representing Jesus' broken body. We're going to take the blood, excuse me, the cup, representing Jesus' shed blood for us, and it reminds us what is true, that God is good, that God has rescued us from our sin, that God offers us communion with him, that we can come to his table and know him both now and forever. And so we're about to do that together. Uh, There's two stations up front. The band's going to play. The elements are gluten-free. And we we practice an open table here, friends, which means that uh, if you have put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are invited to participate with us, even if you're out of town or, or if another church is, is your home. If you have put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and participate with us. So let me pray for us and then we'll partake. Well, God, we thank you for your love and your grace. And Lord, your word, it challenges us, it confronts us, it shows us that you are God and we are not. That you are in charge and we are not. But God, not only are you powerful, not only are you the king of all the earth, you are a rescuer. You are our savior. You forgive us of our sin, Jesus. You heal us. You give us new life. You invite us through no work of our own. No matter how far we stray, Jesus, you say, come. Take and eat. Come and find rest. Come, you are loved. So we thank you, Jesus, and we celebrate you. Amen.